Last week, which is so awesome to be together for the first time, um, physically and in person, so amazing. And I started a series uh, called Barriers to the 92. And I'm using that number 92 just to represent that group of people in Canada, our country, that wouldn't consider themselves followers of Jesus, okay? Now, that number is not hard science, okay? I get it from a sociologist, Reginald Bibby. He did a study like 16, 17 years ago uh, where he found that about 8% of Canadians at the time would say that Jesus is God, that he died, that he rose again, that he's the way of salvation. So about 8%. So that leaves about 92%. And again, that number will fluctuate in how you define evangelical. Different people can get some slightly different numbers. But I'm just using that number, the 92 and the 8 during this series. And the 8 represents those of us who believe that Jesus is God and that he's the way of salvation. And the 92 is that big group of people that does not yet know Jesus as their Savior that way. And one of the things I'm so passionate about here at Crossview, at Crossview, we do not have the way to do things, okay? We need all the churches in this community. I just believe that to the, to the bottom of my heart. And in uh, every church in this community is going to uh, have their own little piece and flavor and, and part of the mission of what God's kingdom is doing here. Crossview cannot do all of that. We're just one little piece. But one of the things we are so passionate about here at Crossview as a board, as a staff, myself, is removing some of the barriers that keep the 92. So there are some barriers that the 92 that, uh, you know, have that keep people, or at least some people in the 92, from seeing how amazing and beautiful Jesus is. Because I actually, I actually really believe that Jesus is so amazing. I think he's so incredible. I think he's so beautiful that I think Many people in the 92, if they could just see how beautiful he is, they would want to follow him. However, there are barriers that keep them from doing that, and we're looking at some of those barriers in this series. And we looked at two last week. We're going to look at one today, but I want to go back to our text for this series, which is Luke 15, okay? And so let's go again to Luke 15, and Luke 15 verse 1 starts this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so I want you to notice two things right off the bat, just like we looked at last week. First of all, I want you to notice who is Jesus fellowshipping and eating with? And the answer is tax collectors and sinners, okay? And I want you to notice the second thing is who is upset with Jesus? And the answer is the religious people. And I often wonder to myself, because as Christians 2,000 years later, we know these stories, we know these passages, and I think we smugly read these passages thinking, oh, those religious people. But I often wonder to myself, would we be the ones Jesus would tick off if he was here in Steinbeck today? I wonder that. And so we go on, and now Jesus is going to give to these religious leaders, he's going to give them his heart. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And he's going to share his heart with them. He says this, Then Jesus told them this parable, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now I want you to notice there, it's really important how Jesus views in what we're calling here in Canada today the ninety-two. We're talking about leaving the eight, not being cloistered in our little uh, safe groups, walled off from the world 
because we can be safe in our own little evangelical subculture. We're talking about being like Jesus, because that's who we're supposed to be like, and leaving the eight to go to the 92. Now, I want you to notice, though, it's really important in Jesus' heart is his perspective towards the 92. He does not call the 92, he does not call them scorpions or wolves or lions or tigers. He calls them sheep. And that is a really important piece of Jesus' heart for the 92, is he has a love perspective, right? He has a love perspective to the 92, not a fear perspective. Jesus is not looking out there and saying, uh, yeah, and I'm going to go out and get the lost scorpion. And, well, that's kind of scary, actually, right? I'm going out to get the lost, you know, rabid tiger. That's not, he says, I'm going out to get the lost sheep. Jesus, when he views outsiders, when he views outsiders, he sees them as sheep. It's not a fear perspective. It's a love, love perspective. Now, I know some of the common objections there could be. One of the objections could be, well, yeah, things were different back then. The world was a less scary place. So Jesus could view them as sheep because it was a less scary place. To which I say, that world that was a less scary place crucified Jesus. Which is a lot worse than any of us is being threatened with today. Okay? That same world that was going to crucify him, Jesus says, I'm going out there for the sheep. Okay? Now, of course... I know some of you in your, in your heads right now, you know your Bibles, and some of you are going, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're leaving something out, because there is a verse, Chris, I know there's a verse somewhere where Jesus says, I'm sending you out like a sheep among wolves. And by the way, I love it when you guys argue with me in your heads. <laughs> Particularly when you argue with me in your heads, because you have Bible verses to back it up, that's really good, because you're right, if you were thinking that, you're right, there is another passage where Jesus talks about sending us out as sheep among wolves. So you're saying, well, what is, what is it? Are, they, are the people out there in the 92, are they wolves or are they sheep? Well, let's go look at Matthew 10 for a moment. And let's just look when Jesus makes this statement about wolves. Let's see who he's talking about, what he's talking about in its context. So Matthew 10, verse 16, Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Okay, so there it is. So that seems like a very different perspective than what he's giving in Luke 15 about his heart for the lost. But let's go on now and let's see in this context who these wolves are. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Who is Jesus talking about here with the wolves? He's talking about the religious people. He said, when you go out there among them, this is radical. What I'm calling to you, this is radical. And some of the people who should actually be on your side, who are studying the same Bible as you, what they had at the time, the Jewish scriptures, those are the people who are going to turn on you. Those are the wolves. Now, it's not true that all religious people are wolves. It's also not true that everybody in the 92 is exactly like a sheep either. But even if there are wolves out there in the 92, I want you to notice what Jesus says next. Even if everybody out there is a wolf, you still shouldn't fear, because this is what he says in verse 18. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry. Do not worry. Even if they are wolves, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. We are fearless sheep, meant to go out into the 92 
to reach some of the lost sheep. And even if the wolves come after us, we don't need to worry because Jesus is going to use even that to reach more sheep. Sheep going to sheep. Now, I want, to, I want us to actually watch this in action because I've spent a lot of time the last while in the Gospels. And the more, I said it last week, the more I meditate on Jesus, the more I fall in love with him. And the more I'm just convicted that how he lived, he still lives today, but how he lived on the earth in the Gospels is a lot different than often we tend to live as Christians, even though we're carrying his name around. But let's see this love perspective, love versus fear, in terms of how do we think of the 92, let's see how this love perspective works out in the Garden of Gethsemane. So what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is about to be crucified. He knows that. His disciples do not know it. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's dark. It's scary. The disciples don't know what's going to happen, but they have, they have a premonition. Jesus is acting strangely. He's saying strange things. Mind you, he was always saying strange things that they didn't understand. Now, again, one of the other things that I love about Jesus, but, but they know something's wrong. He's bleeding as he prays. He's, he's stressed. It's scary. The world is dark in the Garden of Gethsemane this night, and the world feels scary. By the way, that seems pretty relevant to today, doesn't it? So the world is feeling scary to these disciples. And now a big group of soldiers shows up with evil intent. And let's pick this up here in Luke chapter 22. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, that's Peter, and we know it's Peter because of John chapter 18. So you can go look that up in your Bibles if you want. But we know it's Peter because John 18 tells us it's Peter. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Now, again, we know these passages so well that oftentimes they fail to convict us. We know, oh, Peter's doing the wrong thing. But actually, let's back up and pretend for a moment that we don't know that what Peter just did is wrong. And let's just have some empathy for Peter because actually, if we really think about it without knowing what's going to happen next, Peter's actually a pretty good guy. I mean... This is a guy you want with you in a dark alley. Isn't that true? We don't have a lot of dark alleys in Steinbach. But if you, you know, on that dangerous main street here in Steinbach at 11 o'clock, you know, it, it, Peter's the guy you want with you, right? There's a whole group of soldiers. I'm, <laughs> here we go, right? And again, as I always say when I read this story, he's swinging for the head. Nobody swings for an ear, okay? He's going for the head. Guy ducks, he gets the ear. His aim isn't great. The other guy's pretty agile. But Peter, in what he's doing here, what is he doing? He's standing up for right, isn't he? Like what Peter has is courage. He knows these are bad guys. He loves his friend and master Jesus. There are so many things to like about what Peter is doing here. If we just admit it and don't, you know, just let ourselves get carried away with the fact that we know, you know, how this story goes. If we actually put ourselves in Peter's shoes, many of us would not have the courage to stand up for our friends the way Peter does. There's some really good parts about Peter that we see in this. And he's standing up. And yet, in all of that courage and his loyalty to Jesus, he's completely wrong. We read in the next passage, 
Is it possible to stand up and have courage and fight for something that you think is good and still be wrong? Next verse, but Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Jesus actually goes now to the bad guy and he picks up the ear and he heals the man. Peter shows us courage. Jesus shows us a better courage. But I wondered as I was praying this week and meditating on this story, I wonder, I'm not convinced, but I wonder if there is a prophetic picture for the church today in this story and a prophetic picture for the church throughout history. What happens? See, Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. And as churches and as Christians, we often talk about how much the world hurts us. Isn't that true? We often talk. And a lot of it is true. We talk about our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world where terrible things are done to Christians, and that's true, and that's sad, and we should talk about that, and we should always think of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. But we Christians talk a lot about when the world hurts us. What happens, though, when it's the church that's hurting the world? What happens? See, Peter is the disciple here. But Jesus isn't healing Peter. It's not the bad guy who's swinging the sword. It's the disciple that's swinging the sword. What happens when the church is the one swinging the sword and we find Jesus on the other side from us, healing the world from us? That's actually something to think about. And that brings us to barrier number three. We looked at two last week. We're going to look at just this one today. One of the barriers that you will find to the 92 today, being able to see the beauty of Jesus. Because if they could see the beauty of Jesus, many more of them would want to follow him. But one of the things that keeps them from seeing the beauty of Jesus is because of all the times Christians have been the ones doing the hurting. And part of the barrier is when we as Christians have pride, when we lack humility and acknowledgement of the historical wrongs that we have done. So literally, one of the biggest arguments right now against Christianity, you'll actually see this out there, and it's not true, but it is partly true. But you'll see people in writing and in the media, and they will say, you know, Christianity is responsible for all the evils in the world or many of the evils in the world. And of course, that is not true to that level. And I want to just pause before we get to some of the Christian low points. And let's just first acknowledge that actually Jesus, through Christians, has accomplished a lot of good on this earth. I mean, we, and we could spend here for hours talking about how Jesus changes lives. We could talk about how the early Christians in the Roman Empire, I've read a number of books of history on the early Christian movement and some of the most serious historians out there, some Christian, some non-Christian, will tell you that one of the reasons, like how did Christian, because historians all have to grapple with this fact of how does Christianity go from this, you know, tiny little group of Jews in, you know, three or four centuries, and they, they basically take over the Roman Empire. And after that, actually, the quality of Christianity kind of goes down. But that's another story and another message for another time. But how does Christianity go from just this little group of people to this massive movement across the Roman Empire? How does that happen? 
and of course, there's never just one answer in history to some of these big things, but one of the key things is that Christians survived plagues and sickness more because they took care of their own. There's many plagues. Do you know that Christians, and they've actually done like actual historians, not just, you know, Christians trying to look back and, and defend the faith. They've done studies of grave sites and stuff, and you can often tell because of names and stuff who was Christian and who was not. Um, but they found that during some of the plagues, there was plagues that regularly, you know, went rampant through the, through the Roman Empire. And they found that Christians had significantly better chances of surviving disease than non-Christians in the Roman Empire. And what's that? In fact, it was so pronounced that many of the Romans thought these Christians were all miracle workers, and no doubt some of it occasionally was supernatural. But 99% of the reason is because the Christians took care of people when they were sick. What would happen, you know, in some of the big plagues when they would sweep through Rome, uh, actually, like many of the non-Christians, not because they were bad, but because they were scared, they didn't know what to do, is they would literally shove loved ones out into the street. They would just get, we just can't be around you, we're all going to die. They didn't know what to do. Push them out in the street, and people would just lie out in the street and die. Now, your chances of surviving a disease when you're lying in the street and not being taken care of go down. And just having basic food and water and shelter, they, they, in some of the plagues, they actually estimate that Christians were, in some cases, 66% more likely to survive just because they took care of each other. They were so changed by the message of Jesus that human life matters and that if we die, we have eternal life with him, that they showed their love and literally more of them survived, plus it was incredibly attractive to non-Christians. Wow, I want to be a group of people that's going to stick with me if I get really sick. And literally by their love, in the midst of plagues and sickness, they grew Christianity over the centuries by their love and care. And those kinds of things we've seen throughout history, people filled with Jesus, I mean, the first labor laws in Western countries like Britain and stuff was the work of Christian politicians and Christian uh, activists specifically because their faith in Jesus said, I have to do something to help the poor. Hospitals, education. Do you know that in the United States, I, I couldn't find information for Canada, but in the United States, a hundred out of the first 110 universities were founded by Christians. And we could go on and on and on, literally, Books have been written, and so there's no question that Christianity has done an incredible amount of good on the earth, because I, I think there's three basic reasons just to zip through. Um, one of them is this idea that we share with the Jewish people that all human beings, not just the kings or the queens or the pharaohs, but this Christian and Jewish idea that all human beings, we get it from Genesis, are made in the image of God. Therefore, all human beings have intrinsic value. Do you know that for thousands of years that was an incredibly radical idea? I mean, now it's a little bit less radical because Christianity has infected the, much of the world. But for thousands of years that was radical. Every human being has intrinsic value in the image. That's amazing. Human life is worth saving. I mean, that was radical. Second radical thing about Christianity. Do you know that for thousands of years, most human conceptions of God viewed the God or gods as being angry and petty and they just want to get rid of you? 
and along comes Jesus and rocks all of humanity's world by not killing us, instead him dying for us. God loves us so much, he would die for us instead of wanting to kill us. That rocked their world so much, it literally turned people's lives upside down. That's why those early Christians were so on fire to love people. This was insane. And then in Christianity, of all the worldviews that are out there, and I don't know all of them, but certainly it's one of the only worldviews out there where it is clearly stated that the most important command is love God and love people. As Christians, we wake up every single morning, and because of Jesus, our most important thing today is I got to love God and I got to love people. Now, we often forget. Whoops. But Christianity, that worldview, what, who Jesus is and what he's done, is radical and revolutionary and amazing. But this is where we as Christians usually stop talking because we're just all pumped up on how amazing Jesus is and really it's kind of slid into how amazing we are. And what we don't talk about is the times where we have badly, badly missed the mark and made the name of Jesus a thing of distaste and disgust to the world. I just will throw a few low points up there. We could talk about lots, some low points in Christian history, and it's these low points that we Christians don't want to talk about that for the 92, they see these low points and they say, you Christians are the problem. The Crusades. Now, of course, a lot of evangelical Christians, we don't want to take responsibility for things like this because that was the Catholics. It's always good to have someone to blame. So, you know, when in doubt, if you're an evangelical, blame the Catholics. Okay? But, you know, that, the, you know, the Pope, though, multiple popes, I'm going to get in that. It's a little more complicated than one crusade, but there's multiple crusades over a couple of centuries. And in the name of Jesus, they raised up armies of Christian, not men and women, just men. And all the women said amen, right? And they went and did horrible things to the Jews why the Jews? Yeah, good question. To Muslims? Now, of course, you know, Christians want to say there, well, yeah, but the Muslims did bad things too. Oh, yeah, that's in the Gospels. If they do bad things to you, then you're allowed to do bad things back to them, right? That's the Jesus way. No. And that anti-Semitism that, that you know, kind of undergirded the Crusades, it stayed in Christian Europe for centuries. Anti-Semitism stayed in Christian Europe for centuries. Do you know that some of the things, you know, some of the heroes we have the faith, men like Martin Luther, I mean, he father of the Reformation, right? I mean, just this great theologian that helped us get away from the Catholics. Do you, by the way, I'm being sarcastic. You're Catholic here, please. I love you. I love you. No, okay, I'm going to just get myself in trouble. So let's just stop there. Okay, I just love you a lot, okay? But um, Martin Luther said some absolutely hideous things about Jewish people. So bad that Hitler, who was not a Christian, but Hitler and the Nazis were happy to use, they had plenty of material to work with from Martin Luther for all of their anti-Semitic propaganda. And what about, you know, on a little less evil scale, but certainly annoying and pathetic, 
There was the whole century there in the 1600s where basically as Christians, we resisted scientific findings that the earth actually revolves around the sun. And Christians were like, no, it doesn't. And Galileo and some really smart guys are like, yeah, it does. Like we made telescopes and we can look out there and we can see things. Yeah, but the Bible doesn't say it. And then after about 100 years of resisting that, kind of embarrassed and sheepishly, let's not talk about this anymore, I guess that we were wrong. And we could talk about many other things. But do you know where a lot of this comes from? I think an underlying pride that feeds some of these low points. I think one of them is a pride that many of us subconsciously have, even if we wouldn't consciously say it, we live this way, and the 92 can feel it. It's this pride that we think we know better than everybody just because we have a Bible. We think we know better than people. Well, I have the Bible, therefore I must know everything. Can I just tell you something about the Bible and us? We are very regular people. Do you know the one thing we have that's really amazing? Jesus. Did you know that asking Jesus into your heart does not make you any smarter? Such a shock silence. What? You know what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us who made the world. It doesn't tell us how he made it or how it works. The Bible tells us Jesus is that God, and we worship him, and that's the most amazing discovery ever. (laughs) But if I go and talk to some scientist, man or woman, that spent their entire life studying how the world works, just because I can read the Bible does not mean I know as much as them. I don't. All I know is Jesus did that. That's incredible. Tell me more. The Bible tells us God's plan of salvation and points us to Jesus. Jesus himself said this, not how old the earth is or when dinosaurs roam the earth. The Bible tells us the difference between right and wrong, not how to run a government or a hospital or an economy. There's multiple different ways you can do all of those things and you can be a Christian in any of them. The Bible doesn't tell us how to do those things. The people in the 92, lots of them are actually really smart. They're not dumb. And if they even sniff a little bit, which they sometimes get, of that annoying Christian superiority, what they need to sniff off us is, we are a bunch of humble dolts, but we will show you how to love. And we will show you Jesus, who is the way of salvation. And on everything else, we would be happy to learn from you. Please teach us. It's pride. And this brings us, and then we'll pray, one other low point we have to talk about because it's so relevant to right now and right here. And that is residential schools here in Canada. That was a real low point. When churches and Christians joined with the government in a program of forcibly removing indigenous children from their families and trying to erase their culture and history. And once again, please, This cannot be blamed all on the Catholics. Anglicans, Presbyterians, Methodists, United Church, and on and on. And if we would have had more modern evangelical churches back then that were big enough and powerful enough, they would have been involved too. Protestant and Catholic churches both involved. Now, I know some of you get uncomfortable with this. You're like, 
Oh, but Chris, you don't realize I have my uncle's cousin's friend who was a Christian, was in a residential school, and loved those children and loved Jesus. And by the way, you are right. Not every single person who worked in the residential schools was evil. Some of them loved Jesus, and some of them intensely loved the children, and that's why they were there, and they had good intentions. And I thank God for that, or else it would have been even worse. But let me tell you, the fact that there are well-meaning good people doing something with good intentions does not mean that the system wasn't evil. And any system that forcibly removes children from their parents in order to erase their history and cut them off from their families and culture is an evil system, even though you can have well-meaning people within that system. Now, how could Christians participate in something evil even if they were well-meaning and loved Jesus? And I'll tell you how. It comes back to pride. The moment a group of people thinks to themselves, our culture is superior and we are smarter, whatever follows after that is bound to be evil. And that's the, that's the sin that happened. And I know sometimes now we get impatient. When is this going to be over? Like, how much longer do we have to think of, when do we get to move on? Let me tell you something. The abuse that happened, happened over generations. It's not going to get fixed in a couple of years or a couple of decades even. What took generations to wreck will sometimes take generations to heal. And secondly, the abuser doesn't get to say to the abused when we get to stop talking about this. You know what our role is now as Christians? To listen and love. And hopefully God can do something incredible as only he can to bring healing over long periods of time. So here is some humble pie, lessons from history for Christians and Christianity. Things to help us remove this barrier of pride and not acknowledging past sins. Here are three lessons from history for Christians and Christianity. Lesson number one, love. God's kingdom is not advanced by force or violence or anger. You say, are you like a, you a raving pacifist? Wouldn't that be horrible if Chris was a raving pacifist? I'm a, well, technically I'm not. I, I think there's room for a nation that's being attacked to stand up for itself and defend itself. It's called just war. You know, Christians, there's a long tradition of that in Christianity. I don't want to get into a big thing on that. And Christians can participate in such a war, I believe, morally. I think that's, I think that's okay and I think that's biblical. But that's nations. We don't advance God's kingdom by force or anger or violence. When we break that, we do evil and we do tremendous damage to the name of Christ. Applicable to today? I think so. Humility. People need Jesus, not our culture. That's what they need. People need Jesus, 
By the way, when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, his culture was not this culture. People need Jesus. They don't need our culture. And thirdly, we're not smarter or better than people just because we're Christians. We're just not. In fact, sadly, too often, we're not even better in our behavior. And you know what? I don't even think Jesus is that mad about it because we're actually a bunch of bumbling, regular human beings. And we have one thing to bring to the world, and that is not our perfection, but rather our love and the message of Jesus, who has tremendous grace and love for all of us, but not just for the eight, but for the 92. So I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I don't want us just to take a deep breath. I want us to first of all be thankful that we get to be alive in the time that we're alive. There's certainly some annoyances right now, but I'd rather live in Canada right now than pretty much anywhere else. Certainly a lot better to live here right now than Afghanistan. And we pray for them. Jesus, thank you. Forgive us for focusing so much on the things that make us upset rather than just being grateful for how good you are. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for any subconscious Christian superiority. Well, we think we know better than people about all kinds of things when really all we have is you. And we just need to show people you and everything else we can learn from the world. And we can listen to them and we can learn from them too. I pray, Father, that across you, maybe we can have a little peace in the southeast of removing that barrier that people would sense in us and maybe we can be an influence to some that you would, they would sense, hey, you guys don't know it all? Why are you so happy? Why are you so not scared? And we can tell them about you. May we be a people of real love and humility. We pray your blessing on this community. We pray your blessing on every church in this town. We love Steinbeck and Blumenort and all of our surrounding towns and Mitchell and the Brokery. And we're just in the midst of a whole bunch of sheep. And we're sheep. Help us to love. God, go with us this week in love. In your name we pray. Amen.